0: Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. This is session four of the Nationalism versus Globalism course. Today we will be discussing two parts of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, namely part seven, Our Virtues, and part eight, Peoples and Fatherlands. Since it has been a while since we last convened, I thought I would briefly lay out the core arguments from the last three sessions so that we can see more clearly what kind of alternative vision that Nietzsche is offering. In the first session, we discussed the conflict between sovereignty and universal human rights. Sovereignty, understood as a people's prerogative to determine their own way of life within their own borders, is directly at odds with universal human rights, which seek to prescribe a similar way of life for all peoples. In the second session, we saw that Kant points towards perpetual peace if only all countries could be made to be representative democracies and to listen to a host of other proposals. He stopped short of calling for a world state, Though it is difficult to see how reformers animated by Kant's vision would stop short of a world state. In reply, Carl Schmitt argued that the world will be drained of all of its moral seriousness if the world is not broken up into distinct parts, each potentially the friend or enemy of the others. He imagined a nightmarish world broken up into free trade zones in which people could only look forward to a life of consumption and entertainment. Similarly, we saw Ernst Junger insist. That the kind of loves that help make life worth living, which is to say love and admiration of oneself, love of one's nation, and love and respect for one's enemies, all require the world to be broken up into distinct parts that allow us to call some part of it our own. In other words, in order to affirm life, one must affirm at least the possibility of war. His vision was contrasted with Remark, who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. Who looks forward to a fully rational world in which cruel leaders are not allowed to dress their men up in uniforms to die in wars they don't understand or care about. Okay, so with those arguments in mind, let's turn to Nietzsche's text. Now it is a criminal undertaking in my view to read only select parts of Nietzsche's magisterial text, but nevertheless we must do so with a good conscience knowing that we will still learn a great deal from him. One question we might enter the text with is why is, no, why is Nietzsche so difficult to understand? Why do people come away with so many vastly contrasting accounts of what his thought uh, is? Or why do we so often encounter a defanged or watered-down Nietzsche? In aphorism 230 from our reading uh, from the section on virtues, he says, quote, The spirit's power to appropriate the foreign stands revealed in its inclination to assimilate the new to the old to simplify the manifold, and to overlook or repulse whatever is totally contradictory, just as it involuntarily emphasizes certain features and lines in what is foreign, in every piece of the external world, retouching and falsifying the whole to suit itself. Its intent in all this is to incorporate new experiences, to file new things in old files, growth in a word, or more precisely, the feeling of growth, the feeling of increased power, end quote. Let's put this in our own words. We often find ourselves in the usually unwarranted position of feeling as if we have a clear understanding of the way things are and, that we are, and that we more or less know how to comport ourselves well in the world. Therefore, when we encounter something new or foreign, we may find ourselves attempting to assimilate that thing into our firmly established convictions or conceptual categories. It is uncomfortable when we are at a loss to understand something, or when we find an idea that threatens one of our cherished opinions. It is much easier or more comfortable to force new ideas to appear to us as if they are not genuinely new. We take something that is complex or bewildering and attempt to reduce it to something to something much more simple, leaving out the parts that don't fit with what we already understand. We emphasize the parts of a book that easily comport with what we want, we cherry-pick passages. To put this another way, our perception is often motivated to remake the world or alter our mental image of it into something more simple and pleasing than it really is. And we are often so clever at doing this without noticing it that we are able to feel as if we have grown, that we continue to have understanding understanding or mastery over our world, even or precisely when we don't really know it or have any mastery over it at all. One reason that we have so much to gain by reading Nietzsche in a course on nationalism and globalism is that his thought does not fit very neatly into the dichotomy that I've constructed above, namely that the world must be many or one into many nations and states or uh, in one sort of world state. Nietzsche, in a strange way, points to something in between uh, these things. So, for instance, he says in in aphorism 208, which comes before the reading that was assigned, Uh, he says this, here's a quotation. An increase in the menace that Europe would have to resolve Uh, Let me start that over. An increase in the menace of Russia that Europe would have to resolve to become menacing too, namely to acquire one will by means of a new caste that would rule Europe, a long, terrible will of its own that would be able to cast goals millennia hence. So the long, drawn-out comedy of its many splinter states as well as its dynastic and democratic splinter wills, would come to an end. The time for petty politics is over. The very next century will bring the fight for the dominion of the earth, the compulsion to large-scale politics. End quote. We could look at this passage and take away from it something like this, or something that our contemporary mind would like. Oh, Nietzsche thinks that nationalism is bad. If you love Germany or the United States too much, and wish for its people to be distinct from others, you're making a big mistake. But then, when you look at the passage again, you realize that Nietzsche is calling for a European planetary aristocracy to rule over the world. Oh, so he's a globalist. Well, if this is globalism, it certainly seems to have an infinitely different motive and purpose than the globalists we know today. In other words, Nietzsche turns our expectations on their head. Perhaps the world can be one and still be interested. We'll have to uh, think about this. Um, However this may be, let's turn to the beginning of section seven, our virtues, so that we can grasp the argument that lies behind Nietzsche's hope that Europe becomes one. The question we are compelled to ask when we look at the title of the section is who is the hour that Nietzsche refers to when he talks about our virtues? At first, he seems to be referring to something like normal modern Europeans. Are his contemporaries, with their virtues being the historical sense and also compassion. Eventually, the hour and our virtues refers to free-thinking modern Europeans, whose principal virtue is or ought to be honesty. These two kinds of modern minds are in permanent conflict until one side wins. We can detect already within these two accounts of, of the mind outlooks that point towards massively different possibilities. The normal Europeans who prize their historical sense as well as their compassion seem oriented towards the kind of globalism that we see and detest so much today. Whereas the freer European may be the ones that Nietzsche hopes will vie for a Europe that is one. In aphorism 223, Nietzsche brings out the starkly modern conditions that the European finds himself in. Quote, The hybrid European all in all, a tolerably ugly plebeian, simply needs a costume. He requires history as a storage room for costumes. To be sure, he soon notices that not one fits him very well, so he keeps changing. It is no use to parade as romantic or classical, Christian or Florentine, Baroque or national, in Moribus et Artibus. It does not look good, but the spirit, especially the historical spirit, finds its advantage even in despair. Again and again, a new piece of prehistory or a foreign country is tried, put on, taken off, packed away, and above all, studied. We are the first age that has truly studied costumes. I mean those of moralities, articles of faith, tastes in the arts, and religions, prepared like no previous age for a carnival in the grand style for the laughter and high spirits of the most spiritual revelry, revelry, for the transcendental heights of the highest nonsense and Aristophanian derision of the world. End quote. No group of human beings in the history of the world has had access to learning about so many times, places, moralities, or religions. Seeing this parade, the European man realizes that none of these costumes or conventions seem well-suited to him. After seeing the stream of costumes go by, modern man can't help but look at his own way of life as a mere costume. He can only half-heartedly wear it, if at all. By this account, modern man is living within an entirely new historical horizon. The earlier wearers of costumes would have been less keenly aware of them as costumes. But Nietzsche proposes that this new situation can be embraced with an ancient comic disposition. We can laugh like Aristophanes did. In the next aphorism, two twenty-four, Nietzsche continues his account of the historical sense. He brings out how many different cultures flow into the modern soul. He says that historical sense almost means the sense and instinct for everything, the taste and tongue for everything, which immediately proves it to be an ignoble sense. Modern man's curiosity runs rampant, seeking to taste everything, but This is ignoble because he runs the risk of losing sight of the order of rank of cultures. Or worse, as we see today, he may judge the past on the basis of which cultures were the most compassionate, which is to say, least oppressive and most desirous of of abolishing suffering. Nevertheless, while this democratic instinct to turn anywhere and everywhere has its obvious drawbacks, it also makes modern man open to a spirit like Homer. Nietzsche suggests that men who live in a noble or self-sufficient culture, one that is likely to be without the historical sense, has a ready yes-no in its palate, and such a culture is not in search of new desires. Thus, because of their attachment to their own way, a noble culture may miss that the Homeric spirit could enrich that culture. So, the historical sense is not all bad, Uh, Nietzsche sees some good things in it as well. Uh, In aphorism 225, Nietzsche turns from the virtue of the historical sense to the virtue of pity or compassion. The modern man possesses a short-sighted pity at the sight of social distress with society and its sick and unfortunate members, with those addicted to vice and maimed from the start. A nation or state animated by this kind of pity is not likely to turn out far-sighted visionary men, but rather small-souled men who are chiefly concerned with pleasure and pain alone. They threaten to reduce virtue to those actions which reduce the pain in the world. Such men seek to abolish suffering from the world, losing sight of the fact, as Nietzsche argues, that great suffering is the indispensable prerequisite for the enhancement of the human. They pity what is called the creaturely side of man, while forgetting about the side of man that can create, that possesses a hammer. In this section, we can see Nietzsche preparing to move away from his discussion of the average modern European's virtues, which are, again, the historical sense and pity, and he moves toward the freer-thinking European, whose virtue is that of honesty. These freer thinkers, these immoralists, will be perceived as devils without duty by most other men, They will be seen this way because humane ages are unprepared to recognize or utter some truths, especially the truth that all higher cultures find ways to spiritualize their cruelty and make it more profound or divine. At precisely the moment that some of them believe in their hearts that they have dispensed with the need for cruelty. Uh, Cruelty can always slip in through the back door. What modern men are unlikely to understand is that, quote, in all desire to know, there is a drop of cruelty. What exactly does it mean that within the desire to understand or to know that there's a drop of cruelty? How is this honesty that Nietzsche proposes tied to cruelty? We don't always think of it this way. So to return, we return to the aphorism that we began with, uh, aphorism 230. Nietzsche describes the mind or what people call the spirit, as something which seems more inclined to master the world than to understand it. This is what leads so many to retouch the world and falsify the world to suit itself, or to turn suddenly to ignorance, the closing of one's windows, of allowing oneself to be deceived, of wearing a mask. All these wills seek comfort and safety. These wills are at home with the modern virtue of pity. Honesty is then massively opposed to these wills, Because a thinker who sets aside comfort and simplicity in favor of profundity, multiplicity, and thoroughness engages in a will, which is a kind of cruelty of the intellectual conscience. And this requires a higher type of man to engage in it. In a footnote to his book, Nietzsche's Task, Lawrence Lampert points out that the German word for honesty is redlichkeit. We could use the word probity instead of honesty to translate it. But even this may lose some of what Nietzsche means. Following Alan White, Lampert says that the honest are those who are aware of the perpetual possibility of seeing and naming differently and taking delight in such looking and talking. It is steadiness with respect to intellectual honesty and may entail a frankness of speech. However, this may be, we can say for sure that honesty ends up pointing against the things that the other mind hopes for that most of the time we seek comfort, we seek to believe that we have somehow mastered the world. Um, But this could turn out to be a delusion, a very painful delusion to let go of, one that you would need to be honest about. So returning back to the text, Nietzsche argues that honest men have the great task of allowing the basic text of homo natura, the nature of man, to again be recognized rather than allowing men to hear the siren songs of old metaphysical bird catchers. To put this in our own words, we might say, then, it seems like Nietzsche is presenting us with two different types of minds. On one hand, we have the mind that wants to feel as if it is mastering the world, and it does so by fleeing the truth or by lying. This mind seeks a world in which pity rules, and where suffering might be abolished. This mind seeks metaphysical delusions, uh, such as teachings that show us that man is of infinite significance, or perhaps something like Platonism, Christianity, or a secularized Christianity that attempts to mostly keep Christian values while jettisoning God from them, on the other hand, Nietzsche presents a mind that is animated by honesty and which knows that the desire to know is a kind of cruelty because it sets aside the delusions that provide a comfortable that provide a comfortable set of ideas that make life safer for us. The most important of these delusions that must be set aside, according to Nietzsche, is that man is qualitatively different than the rest of nature. According to Nietzsche in this section, we have to be translated back into the rest of nature. We would then be best understood by this account as animals. You can see that these two different types of mind point towards and wish for entirely different circumstances to live in. They thus point to very different arrangements of the world. Part of what Nietzsche will do in the Peoples and fatherland section is to try to show why the honest mind should strive for a Europe that is one. A Europe that is over and done with petty nationalism as it moves towards more grand politics. We're going to skip past Nietzsche's comments on women at the end of this chapter, not because they're not important. In fact, I hope in the audio discussion group we can talk in detail about those sections and how they relate to these arguments. Um, but I think it will take us uh, on a somewhat roundabout path, and so um, I look forward to discussing this with many of you later. So let's turn to part eight, uh, Peoples and Fatherlands. Nietzsche begins part eight with a discussion of Richard Wagner's Die Meistersinger. In the immediately subsequent aphorism, he says, quote, We good Europeans, we too know ours when we permit ourselves some hearty fatherlandishness a plop and relapse into old loves and narrownesses. I have just given a sample of that, hours of national agitations, patriotic palpitations, and various other sorts of archaizing, sentimental inundations. More ponderous spirits than we are may require time to get over what with us takes only hours, and in a few hours has run its course. Here, as much as anywhere, we get a passage that will lead podcasters to cry out indignantly That Nietzsche is not a nationalist. He hates nationalism. Indeed, Nietzsche suggests here that nationalism is archaic and that it is a sentiment one might relapse back into, a sentiment that Nietzsche looks forward to others getting over as soon as possible. Why would he say this? Let's try to put this in the context of the previous chapter. The historical sense is able to become widespread. Average people are now, for the first time in human history, drinking from a fire hose of information about the past and different ways of life. In Our Virtues, Nietzsche mentions that the grandfathers of modern men, or he mentions what he calls the grandfathers of modern men, and by this he seems to indicate that they are our our Christian or Jewish ancestors. He mentions, this was in aphorism 214, he mentions later in aphorism 216, Our Fathers, and he seems to indicate that they are the Enlightenment thinkers. So here are two quotations from a recent article by an anonymous writer who goes by Nostromo on Nietzsche's political project that further helps us put Nietzsche's apparently anti-nationalist stance in perspective. I highly recommend you read his article. Um, I learned a lot from it, and I'll make sure to post it um, on the uh, Substack page. So here is Nostromo, quote, Christianity as the first universalizing morality, the epitome of slave morality began the 2,000-year process of homogenization of distinct nations and peoples, and the democratic movement, which replaced God with the state, is the heir to Christianity. A people cannot exist without its own distinct morality. And later he says, quote, A radicalization, and thereby a completion of the Enlightenment, and a revival of antiquity through a sharpening of modernity, not wishing to turn back the clock to a pre-Christian, pre-democratic age, but rather using Christianity and democracy as the foundation for a new philosophy, and new ruling caste, one that makes use of Christian homogenization and considers itself heir to the ascetic ideal and the will to truth. In the past, so end quote, in the past, I suppose I'd foolishly generally taking Nietzsche to be a harsh critic of the Enlightenment, For instance, you know, we saw uh, or we'll see that he attacks utilitarianism in a big way, among other things. So, Nostromo's argument about radicalizing the Enlightenment was initially a surprising thing for me to hear. Upon further reflection, though, it strikes me as maybe the only or best way to make sense of Nietzsche's repudiation of petty nationalism and a favoring of Europe becoming one. In other words, Nietzsche hopes to revive a classical disposition or mindset in the midst of new circumstances, we, we saw Aristophanes earlier, without trying to make a return to the same conditions under which the classical disposition originally came to be. There is no going back. But the hope is that the Greeks, or the best of the Greeks, habitual attitude towards life can be recovered. Nietzsche sees that Christianity, the historical sense, and democracy have forever changed the moral horizon of Europe. If this is the new human situation, the process that led up to it can be radicalized by insisting on the goodness of the will to truth that has lied at the bottom of it. As Lawrence Lampert strikingly puts it, it is the virtue of honesty or the will to truth that does away with all the other Christian virtues over time. And as we can say ourselves, if this is the case, the will to truth or honesty might be that which eventually points to the Greek or classical disposition or mindset. And it may be that that disposition is best described in the next section that comes after peoples and fatherlands, what is noble. So this reflection prepares us, I think, to understand what's going on in uh, aphorism 242. Here Nietzsche says, quote, call that in which the distinction of the European is sought, civilization or humanization, or progress, or call it simply, without praise or blame, using a political formula, Europe's democratic movement. Behind all the moral and political foregrounds to which such formulas point, a tremendous physiological process is taking place and gaining momentum. The Europeans are becoming more similar to each other. They become more and more detached from the conditions under which races originate that are tied to some climate or class, They become increasingly independent of any determinate milieu that would like to inscribe itself for centuries in body and soul with the same demands. Thus, an essentially supranational and nomadic type of man is gradually coming up, a type that possesses, physiologically speaking, a maximum of of the art and power of adaptation as its typical distinction. Nietzsche goes on to suggest that the apostles of modern ideas may be surprised by what transpires when they advocate the fading away of national feeling for reasons that are entirely opposed to Nietzsche's reasons for this wanting this feeling to go away. So the apostles of modern ideas might hope for the kind of world state that some people wish for today or, you know, people who defend the liberal world order. But Nietzsche is saying that when you get rid of national feelings, maybe what those kind of people want will come to pass But as also he hopes likely uh, that something altogether different could happen once certain, as he calls it, petty nationalistic feelings uh, fade away. So to be sure, the apostles of modern ideas will turn most men into mediocre men, into a useful, industrious, handy, multipurpose herd animal. But people who are prepared for slavery, but while these people might be prepared for slavery, This might also enable the cultivation of a strong human being in exceptional cases who will be able to take advantage of modern conditions and become an actual and spiritual tyrant over the Europeans who will seek and desire to be commanded. Nietzsche tells us that the German soul is already manifold of diverse origins, more put together and superimposed rather than built. A German who would make bold to say two souls, alas, are dwelling in my breast would violate the truth rather grossly or more precisely would fall short of the truth by a good many souls. Uh, As a people of the most monstrous mixture and medley of races, perhaps even with a preponderance of the pre-Aryan element as people of the middle in every sense, the Germans are more incomprehensible Comprehensive, contradictory, unknown, incalculable, surprising, even frightening, than other people are to themselves. They elude definition and would be on that account alone the despair of the French. And that's all from Aphorism 244. Uh, if we assume that Nietzsche is right about the Germans with this description above, and he surely knows more uh, or he surely knows them much better than I do. Uh, So we'll take for granted for the moment that he's right. We see a case for the Germans or that the Germans ought to strive to be Europeans as opposed to Germans. This is especially the case if they are not sufficiently distinct as a people, then perhaps they might become one with other peoples who are enduring the same modern conditions. Although Nietzsche is as clear as possible that this only includes uh, Europeans. In sections 245, or sorry, aphorisms 245 to 247, Nietzsche speaks of German musicians, prose writers, and readers. Throughout, he seems to judge them on whether they measure up to what it means to be European rather than merely German, or whether they measure up to the ancient view as opposed to the modern one. Perhaps if one's excellence is recognizable outside of Germany, it means that the excellence is transcultural. If one can match the excellence of the ancients, then one's excellence is transtemporal. In calling on the best of the European nations to go beyond being merely English, French, or German, uh, and altogether beyond merely modern excellence, Nietzsche hopes for the production of higher human types that both somehow are at home among the ancients and at home among the best of the modern Europeans. In Aphorism 248, Nietzsche brings out that some nations in Europe are more feminine, and some are more masculine. Uh, And in this way, it may be the case that Europe is well-situated to bring forth new generative possibilities, but also that Europe will have just as difficult a coming together and understanding of one another as men and women do. So Europe is poised either to come together uh, in a beautiful generative relationship, or there will be... Uh, fighting and screaming and throwing of things. In the next sets of aphorisms, Nietzsche moves to talk about the Jewish people, the English people, and the French people. So we begin with the Jewish people. The Jews receive some of Nietzsche's highest praise and some of his most brutal blames and beyond good and evil. Earlier in aphorism 195, this comes from the part on the natural history of morals. Nietzsche says that the Jews led the revolt on behalf of slave morality. This was a world historical revaluation of values. Now, likewise, this might remind us of the preface to Beyond Good and Evil, where it is said that the possibility of breaking out of the Platonism that has dominated the European spirit for so long is possible. So Athens and Jerusalem lie at the bottom of our situation. It's thus fitting that Nietzsche begins With the Jews insofar as that they have contributed more to the kinds of modern conditions that exist, along with Plato, than anybody else. Both the bad things, but also the new possibilities that can exist. Now, coming back to the peoples and fatherlands part, Nietzsche argues uh, that the Jews are the strongest, toughest, and purest race in Europe. This makes them indigestible by the weak German stomach. In this way, the Jews are more ready to be a nation than the Germans are, um, and the other peoples of Europe. These peoples, Nietzsche insists, have not been together long enough to develop into genuinely separate races, and modern conditions make such a development less likely. Thus, Nietzsche sees Europe becoming one, with the Jews likely finding it easier to inhabit Europe that is one than in fledgling nations trying to assert that they are more naturally born than they really are. Nietzsche next turns his gaze to the English. Of the English, he says, they are no philosophical race, these Englishmen. Bacon signifies an attack on the philosophical spirit. Hobbes, Hume, and Locke, a debasement and lowering of the value of the concept of philosophy for more than a century. Then in aphorism 253, Nietzsche says the following. Finally, they have more to do, the English that is, than merely to gain knowledge, namely to be something new, to signify something new, to represent new values. Perhaps the chasm between know and can is greater, also uncannier than people suppose. Those who can do things in the grand style, the creative, may possibly have to be lacking in knowledge, while on the other hand for scientific discoveries of the type Darwin's Type of Darwin's, a certain narrowness, aridity, industrious diligence, something English in short may not be a bad disposition. In other words, Nietzsche seems to be proposing that the English are too concerned with understanding things than with doing things, and that it might be precisely a spirit who knows very little, which might be capable of doing things. Um, I guess if you were thinking of an example today, it could be a question of, While many, you know, students of political philosophy think that they would be fit to be a president who could, uh, you know, change the world. Whereas it might be the case that uh, rather a political man with great instincts and charisma would be much, much more successful as a president than uh, somebody who understands permanent political problems. One would hope that such a leader, uh, their instincts in some way sense certain limitations within political life. But it may be that uh, to rule or to be you know, a spiritual leader of a people requires more will than it does knowledge. And Nietzsche seems to think that the English have more of this knowledge and less of the will that's required. And with that knowledge, uh, Nietzsche says in the next, uh, or sorry, in the same aphorism, Finally, we should not forget that the English, with their profound normality, have once before caused an overall depression of the European spirit. What people call modern ideas or the ideas of the 18th century or also French ideas that, in other words, against which the German spirit has risen with profound disgust was of English origin. There is no doubt of that. The French have merely been apes and mimes of these ideas. So we see an interesting tension when it comes to the English ideas or these modern ideas. On one hand, the modern ideas make men mediocre by Nietzsche's account. On the other hand, it may also be the case that some of the modern ideas liberate people from a certain kind of petty fatherlandishness, which will open up a new possibility for higher types to reorganize things, to aim for goals that are millennia ahead uh, instead of just looking uh, at GDP for next year. So the plebeian character of the English both presents a problem and in the future, a possibility. Shortly into the the next aphorism, aphorism 254, Nietzsche speaks of Schopenhauer, and he says this, Perhaps Schopenhauer is even now more at home and indigenous in this France of the spirit, which is also a France of pessimism, than he ever was in Germany. Not to speak of Heinrich Hein, who has long become part of the very flesh and blood of the subtler and more demanding lyric poets of Paris, or of Hegel, who today exerts an almost tyrannical influence through Tain and who is the foremost historian now living. But as for Richard Wagner, the more French music learns to form itself in accordance with the actual needs of the Ame Moderne, the more it will Wagnerize. That one can predict, and it is doing enough of that even now. So if there are Germans who are more spiritually at home somehow in France than they are in Germany, this provides more of a case, uh, if Nietzsche's right about this, for Europe becoming one that if you could transplant various Europeans and take them from one nation and plop them in another, then they would e- perhaps do even better than they might have otherwise. It would follow that if Europe uh, become becomes one, that somehow they will all be more at home. The French, though, to their credit, Nietzsche <clears throat> argues, have three distinct advantages. They have artistic passion. They have a deeper moral culture and they know something of both northern and southern Europe. Thus in France, there is a greater accommodation for the more comprehensive and rarely contented human beings who cannot find satisfaction in a fatherland, perhaps a man like Nietzsche himself. We see increasingly in this section the intrusion of German concerns and whether or not the French will become German in some respects. This reflects the increasing homogenization of Europe, And it raises for us the question that Nietzsche had asked before. What will the ruling caste look like in a unified Europe? Perhaps, as Lawrence Lambert has suggested, the new ruling caste can only be formed through a marriage of minds. Anti-modern, anti-English ideas of the German philosophy are to occasion marriages with the French. In particular, so the English ideas... Dominate the minds of the Europeans. The Germans resist these uh, ignoble and ugly ideas, uh, although they're still plebeian themselves. But then the French point towards some kind of openness. So you almost can see three stages to some extent of the English promoting uh, some kind of utilitarianism and pity, then a German revolt against that kind of thing, which turns towards a kind of French openness. And it's possible that this, uh, there's a hope that Europe will look something like a synthesis of these things in the future. Okay, well, there's a lot more to say about these things, but we'll save it for the discussion group, which I look forward to uh, talking with all of you soon. Uh, Brian Wilson out.